Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome, everybody. Anybody here for the first time in person? Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to anybody joining us on Zoom for the first time. Just got back. Some people that are in the room uh, were with me. We were on a seven-day silent retreat, which ended um, yesterday. Was that yesterday? Yep, yesterday. And uh, I'm having that experience. And I also had a little bit of a busy day today, running, running around, picking, catching up on stuff, dealing with my children, and um, I'm having that experience of like, over, like. Uh, over teaching, like I'm taught out, like I got nothing to say. Um, so we'll see, might be interesting. Maybe, maybe something interesting will come through. But um, rather than doing the regular uh, small group introductions tonight, let's just jump into a meditation. So find a way to be that's upright, relaxed, turning your cell phones off and Finding a posture that feels appropriate for stillness, for being upright. Um, posture is not that important. Just finding a way that your body feels supported. And as you're ready, allowing your eyes to be closed. Releasing any unnecessary tension, softening the brow, the jaw, the shoulders, chest, and belly, so that the body is upright without holding unnecessary tension, relaxed, receptive, open. And it's so useful to establish a attitude of kindness from the beginning, the intention, the aspiration to be friendly towards your experience, whatever it is, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. And resting the attention on the breath, mindfulness of the body breathing. Of course, there's still awareness of sound, awareness of thoughts, of all the other sensations in the body. We're not trying to stop the mind, but we're choosing to redirect our attention out of the 
future and past thinking, as we direct mindfulness, this kind of meditation where we pay attention and we choose to pay attention to the breath for the first few minutes. Each time the attention wanders back into thinking without judgment, with a friendly intention, come back to your breath over and over, returning to the breath.
if you're new to this kind of meditation practice. The breath awareness is a foundation. Learning to break our addiction to the mind, to constant planning. Come back to the breath. Soften the belly. Return to self-acceptance right now. My mind is thinking, but I choose to disengage, come back to the body, feeling. The Buddha's full instructions become more and more inclusive, present time, non-judgmental awareness of our whole being. all of the sensations in this physical form, investigating, becoming aware of what is perceived as pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Where's the pain in the body or in the heart or the mind? Where is there pleasure? physical, emotional, mental, pleasant experience. And how much of our experience is neither neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. can use our cognitive abilities to investigate, to think about what's happening right now, how does it feel, where am I feeling pleasure, where am I feeling pain. Sometimes it's very subtle. And although we begin with the breath, and if you're new, it's okay to stay there. The Buddha's encouragement is to expand, to include the mind, turn your attention towards the thinking mind, observe how thoughts arise and pass without volition. These thoughts also perceived as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral.
you find yourself really involved in thinking, come back to feeling the body sitting, hands resting. Investigate the feeling tone, sensation, what's pleasant or unpleasant. Something's really painful in the body. Use that as the object. Turn right towards that ache in the back or knee or leg or ass, wherever you're feeling it. Investigate the impermanent changing nature of sensation. And incline your heart and mind towards tolerance and compassion, acceptance and friendliness towards your own pain. Likewise, if there's repetitive thoughts, unpleasant emotions, stories, resentments, bring mindfulness to how that feels, how it's changing. Trying to disengage some from the content and be aware of the process.
for the last couple of minutes. Let go of effort, stop trying to be present with the breath, stop investigating, and just rest. So because I um, don't feel inspired at the moment by any in particular topics and don't want to just pick one, let's spend this evening uh, just with a Q&A. So you get to decide what the topic is tonight by you know, reflecting for a moment um, 
and it can be a any you know question of that you have specific questions about some aspect of buddhism the buddhist teachings or it can just be like a, a little bit more general topic that you'd like to hear a little bit more about buddhist topic or um so you guys you choose at home you can raise your hand in the reactions tab down at the bottom of the zoom bar there or in the room you can just let me know raise your hand and um i'll just take some topics and reflect on them a little bit arthur go ahead Um, so I'll just take one at a time. So the question is, what is the objective goal of Buddhism and how does it relate to the Eightfold Path? And uh, is the Eightfold Path the, the goal? Um, the way that the Buddha set up the teachings, the Buddhist path, was the Four Noble Truths. The Eightfold Path is the fourth noble truth, is, which is what we need to do in order to get to the goal, which is the third noble truth, which is Nirvana. Nirvana, the goal, is enlightenment, awakening, the end of suffering, the direct experience of being able to live a life, a normal life, right? Nirvana sounds so otherworldly, I think, or, um, but it's supposed to be living a normal life, ordinary, going to work, being in a relationship or not being in a relationship, uh, living, you know, parenting or not parenting, doing whatever you're doing in this world without suffering about it. The goal, the end of suffering, to end all of those layers of unnecessary stress and fear and anger and resistance and resentment and clinging and craving and suffering that we lay on top of our experience. The Eightfold Path is what will help us, what will bring us to being able to communicate in a way and listen in a way that doesn't create suffering and of course, the meditation that we're doing, the sixth, seventh, and eighth factors, spokes of the path, the effort into mindfulness and concentration, which will bring us into this place of having compassion for pain rather than hatred, tolerance and mercy and compassion for all of the difficulties in the meditation instruction we turn towards our pain. I invited you, I said, you know, pay attention and investigate pain in your relationship to the unpleasant here and now. The goal being the more we can do that and become intimate and familiar and more tolerance, more mercy, more compassion for our pain. And then when we're walking through life and difficult things happen, we know how to meet it with friendliness. We train our mind, our heart to be compassionate. Compassion ends suffering. Now, this is important to realize that when we're talking about nirvana, we're talking about enlightenment, we're talking about the end of suffering, we in no way are talking about the end of pain. So forget about it. <laughs> 
if you think you're going to get so fucking spiritual that life's not going to hurt anymore, you're wrong. It's not the way it works. Existence hurts. Having a nervous system means you're going to have pain regularly, every day, even if you're a Buddha. This is important, really. I think this is really important because so often we go into this delusion about like, well, I just want to not have pain anymore. I want to meditate away all of the pain of existence. And it's completely impossible. This is the Buddha's teaching. He said, fully, he said, you know, he liked to brag a bit. He's like, I'm a fully enlightened being, the fucking Buddha. And my back hurts and my foot hurts. And the community, the Sangha, is a real pain in the ass. It's really unpleasant to live with all these Buddhists, complaining all the time and fighting all the time. And, you know, their views and opinions. And it's really unpleasant existence. But when you have compassion for it, you don't suffer about it. But it doesn't make it not unpleasant. Some of the time. You know, also, the other bad news is that pleasure is unavoidable. Sorry to break it to you. If you're thinking you're going to be so austere and spiritual that you're never, you know, you'll have no preference for pleasure. Just accept everything just as it is, man. You're always going to like pleasure better. But developing through the mindfulness, through the Eightfold Path, through the renunciation, the ability to have non-attached appreciation towards pleasure. You're always going to like it better, want it. But that difference, the difference between pain and suffering, part of the goal is to know the difference. This is pain. I don't have to suffer about it. Without training our minds, we just suffer about it. With compassion, we don't have to suffer about it. Pleasure, the difference between wanting and craving, are quite different. Wanting, no problem, no suffering. Wanting is take it or leave it. Craving, that feeling of I have to have it in order to be happy, I have to satisfy this compulsion, whatever it is. Even if it's just a compulsion to move during meditation, I can't be happy with my ankle hurting. This is bullshit. I crave to be comfortable. And just that ability to say, oh, actually, I can tolerate discomfort. And I want to be comfortable, but I don't have to be. Of course, I want to be comfortable, but I don't have to be. I can tolerate being uncomfortable. I've learned that meditation teaches us. I think one of the most beneficial things that sitting meditation teaches us is how to be uncomfortable. Learn to sit still and be uncomfortable. And if you're too comfortable during meditation, feel sorry for you. <laughs> sit longer, sit up straighter, don't sit in these comfortable chairs all the time. We need some discomfort to learn compassion, to learn tolerance, to prepare us from all of that unavoidable difficulties that is part of existence. We need to increase that tolerance. The goal is to end suffering. 
the Eightfold Path is the path to end suffering. James, go ahead. You can unmute yourself. Thank you, Noah. It's good to see you back in the saddle again. Thanks. Um, yeah, I missed you last week. I uh, had to sit with Ward three times last week. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I actually, um, on, on that note, on that, that, that uh, kind of nice laugh that you have, I really enjoy that. Um, I've been through, um, in sitting, I've been through the, the bizarre um, thoughts and the lustful thoughts and the revengeful thoughts. And uh, recently, um, I've had just kind of a string of, of really funny thoughts that actually are visceral. And, and I find myself um, um, laughing. Um, and um, I was just wondering um, if you had any thoughts on, on um, humor and, and meditation and mindfulness and Buddhism. I know you have a, a very um, nice um, style of delivering your 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 dharma and uh um you know just where does that fit in general humor and laughter and fun thanks james uh, everybody in the room here the question from the computer good enough yeah and at home you can hear each other on zoom um i love this question and it's a question i had uh, 20 years ago, over 20 years ago, I was in a Buddhist teacher training program. Um, and uh, with Jack Cornfield, Spirit Rock, up, you know, then with the establishment up there. And, and they, uh, and he asked part of our training, one of the questions was, is there anything missing from Buddhism that's important to you? And at, and at first I was like, that's a stupid question. <laughs> Of course not. I'm a good Buddhist. Like <laughs> Buddhism's perfect. Nothing's missing. But it was a serious question, and um, I could only come up with two things. At, you know, at the, now I probably have a longer list now. But back then, <laughs> back then when I was still a naive young man. A naive older man, but um, the the first thing that I thought was um, it's missing any explicit teachings on the importance of humor. It's all very serious. The truth of suffering, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering, the eightfold path that ends suffering, dependent origination. This you know, there's all of it. It's like where's the fart jokes in Buddhism? <laughs> <laughs> and because it's a 2600 year old tradition and it was an oral tradition spoken um you know passed down by you know teacher to student in that uh way and then it wasn't written down for a couple hundred years first you know i told you about the eightfold path and then you told them about the eightfold path and you know like it was just telephone for 200 years i mean by hundreds of monks and monastic they chanted it they memorized it they fairly reliable on some level but um it's hard to pass on the humor 
I think, when you're just trying to memorize the lists. And I don't know if the Buddha had a sense of humor or not, but it's just hard to tell. And I wonder if I wonder if there's something cultural about humor. I mean, I guess every culture has its own humor and um, but like you ever seen the Dalai Lama, His Holiness, the 14th Dalai Lama? If you've ever listened to him talk or gone and see him or watched his videos are very humorous very gentle very loving and humorous and there's something about the dharma that comes through him and his tibetan lineage and culture that is um you know it's clear that like he is having a chuckle quite often sometimes about very serious things but then there's other um you know like a big influence in my in the vipassana meditation instruction is the Burmese tradition from Mahasi Sayadaw and Upandita Sayadaw and, um, and no humor, humorless. And, and, and also an emphasis, I mean, I don't know if they're cracking jokes you know, in the back room, but not when they're teaching. And there's this, actually this whole thing in that uh, Burmese tradition that when they teach, because they don't, they want to completely remove their personality. They want you to just hear the teachings and not bring any of their own personality and humor into it. Um, they actually teach often from behind, they cover their faces. They cover their faces with this palm frond. And so then the first noble truth is, and it's this like monotone. That was also advertising this book that you just should buy this. <laughs> This is American consumerism. Um, the, and I know this isn't completely your question, James, but I'm just sort of reflecting on the influences on me. And that even though, as far as I know, in the Pali Canon and the suttas, there's nowhere where it explicitly talks about the, in, the importance of humor. A couple of um, scholars that really know the suttas and have spent you know, their life studying them said it's in there, have told me. They, they believe that the humor is in there and the humor is in the early teachings in, um, in some of the uh, similes and analogies that the Buddha uses. Um, that when you read them, you're like, that's not funny, but... <laughs> Maybe it's meant to be, yeah. Um, you know, things like, I don't know if this is one of them or not, but it comes to mind where there's this sutta where the Buddha is like, he's talking about perspective and he's like, it's as though there were five blind people and they were each touching an elephant and one was touching the trunk. So they said, an elephant is like this, it's long and it's hairy and it's, it's got a hole at the end. That's what an elephant, and one's touching the <laughs> leg. And, and, you know, and like, well, this is what an elephant is like, because, and anyways, he's just using this example of blind people groping an elephant. <laughs> and maybe it's supposed to be funny. I'm not sure. Like, I always took it seriously. I'm like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Like, you only, you only see what you, you know, what you would, you know, if you can't see, you're just, you know, like, yep, that's an elephant. 
know. I think it also depends on our personalities. Some of it's cultural. Um, I've always been a bit of a smart ass. So that just kind of comes, you know, some of, some of that's just my personality. Um, when I started practice, I was suffering so much that I was pretty humorless, I think, as far as I recall, I was, um, and I was a much more, um, concerned with being cool and being right and being than than trying to be funny so i don't know james i i know this is about like that development in our practice my own feeling is a sense of humor is necessary but you can't fake it you can't make yourself like if you're depressed it's not funny if you're you know, detoxing from your addiction, if you're in a lot of suffering, it's hard to uh, have any joy or humor. But if you keep practicing, and the suffering starts to lessen, there's a sense of joy and lightness. And, and as we stop taking ourselves so serious, I mean, a, a core goal of nirvana is realizing that it's not that personal this human condition, the mind, the ego, the self-centeredness, it's not that personal. And often when we don't have a sense of humor, it's because we're taking things quite seriously and quite personal. But when we can start to laugh at the self, at ourselves, at our lack of selves, and we can make fun of each other and let each other make fun of us and, and uh, not be so defensive and reactive. And um, it's part, for me, it's part of the joy of of the practice was having a laugh and hopefully being able to laugh at myself as well, not just at others. It feels totally appropriate to me that that's happening for you, James, in your practice and anybody else that it is. And I actually encourage it. And sometimes when I'm, I've actually done, there's a laughing meditation, which is terribly painful. Have you ever tried it? where you have to fake laugh for like 10 or 15 or 20 minutes and you try to get the whole group to just fake laugh and it's it for me it's really fun for like two minutes <laughs> it's really funny for the first couple of minutes you're like <laughs> and then after a couple of minutes it's like oh this is tiring and it's taking so much effort to keep going and I want to stop. I want to relax. I like meditation where you just get to sit there. I'm fucking lazy. I don't want to laugh. I just want to sit here. I definitely have a bias um, towards humor and joy and lightness and friendliness. When I meet uh, and I've, you know, I've spent some of my life going and meeting. I wanted to meet the enlightened gurus in India. And I wanted to meet the Buddhists, the, the Dalai Lama and Thich Nhat Hanh and the Westerners that were developed. And, you know, I spend time with monks a lot. And um, I was with Ajahn Sumedho, saw him teach last month, who's the most senior in the Ajahn Chah. And he's very gentle and, and kind of humorous. 
And I have a bias towards people who are a little bit funny and, and just light. And, you know, some of the spiritual people that I've met that are very serious and authoritative and this is the way it is and it's not a fucking joke. I don't trust them. <laughs> like fucking lighten up, Francis. <laughs> But they also probably think like, no, you need to fucking take this shit a little bit more seriously. <laughs> I don't know. I was told that I lack composure as a Dharma teacher once. <laughs> One of my teachers was like, you know, it's the lack of composure. <laughs> I was like, what's that mean? You're like you're supposed to be fake? Composure means fake? I don't know what that means. Don't be authentic? Okay. All right. La next question. Anything in the room? There's a bunch online in the back. Yeah, please. I'm um, struggling with attachment for numerous things. I, I guess I have a son who's 12 years old that I love dearly. And I can't wrap my head around the possibility of attachment Um, for those of you at home that maybe couldn't hear it completely, it's a question about um, personal parenting, a father who's talking about being attached to their 12-year-old son and the kind of like, uh, how could that be bad? Or, or even like if Buddhism's, I'll re reframe it a little bit, which is, you know, if Buddhism's teaching us non-attachment is the solution, but then we have children or we're in marriages or relationships or whatever, how the fuck are we supposed to be non-attached? And even that kind of like, I don't even want to be. I don't want to not be attached to my children. Um, it's a great question. I can reflect on it a little bit. The, my first sense is like, of course. Of course we're attached to our kids. And to our friends and to our partners and to our, there's, there's something that's just like, of course, it's the natural human condition. It's wired into us. It's natural. It's part of what we experience as love. Now, attachment, we're using this term attachment. Um, and I, I'll use my hand uh, Attachment means clinging in this context, which means controlling. Now, you love your kid. I've got a couple of kids. I love the shit out of my kids. Um, but, and I feel, often feel attached. But attachment in this case means I want to, you know, want to make that kind of bend them to my will and control them and not let them have their own experience. Attachment um, I think that partially what we experience as 
parents, but this is beyond parenting. This is just relational, um, is connection. And there's nowhere that Buddhism is asking us to disconnect from loving each other or our children or our, it's just saying, don't try to control and don't cling, which is like, you have to bend to my will all of the time. And you see that part of parenting, it's not very fun when we're trying to control our 10 year old, 12 year old son. Is that what you said? Good luck. luck, Right. So that's, but so when you're clinging and you're trying to control suffering, right. And you don't like it that you said, I want, I like the uh, um, attached. I don't even, but you don't want that part. That part sucks when you're trying to control your kids, but when you're loving them and guiding them and, and, you know, having some consequences at time and having those conflicts and everything that goes into parenting, it's love, it's connection. Buddhism isn't saying be disconnected. It's saying be fully connected, but also understand your kids have their own karma and their own free will. And, you know, and then Western psychology comes in and says, and they're going to individuate and tell you to fuck off sometimes. <laughs> you know, like that's just part of it. If you're so attached that you can't tolerate conflict and disconnection at times from them, you're going to suffer so much. So this isn't only about parenting. This is about all relationships. The ideal is non-attached connection, loving presence with each other. Not clinging and controlling, but non-attachment is connection. It's not, dis. Uh, what is it? Sometimes we hear detachment. I almost, I try to not say detach because detach means separateness. I try to say non-attach, which means connected presence with our children, with our partners, with our friends, with our communities. That's the goal. The reality is we're not very good at it as humans. We cling and try to control and (laughs) we do that. And then we um, tend to, or I do anyways, I don't know if this is male, uh, but then, then I'll like, I will detach and I'll like, my feelings will get hurt and I'll shut down a little bit and dis, you know, dis, 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 disengage and then I'll come back. And then I'll, and there's those moments of just connected, non-attached presence. And then I'll cling again, <laughs> try to control and then I'll detach and then I'll connect and then I'll cling and then I'll detach and then I'll connect. And then I'll cling. and that dance of relationship, whether it's in parenting or any other relationships. Parenting has a whole nother special flavor to it because it's like, wait, I'm supposed to. Wait, no, you're supposed to do what I say. <laughs> I'm supposed to guide you and, you know, and you're supposed to listen, right? That's the deal. I'm your fucking dad. <laughs> I think. The practice that helps in Buddhism, because there's that love, there's that compassion, and there's that natural attachment, um, is the equanimity practice. And equanimity, there's a meditation that we do where you bring someone to mind and you remind yourself, this person has their own karma. Their happiness or unhappiness depends on their actions and their reactions and their 
relationship to what we're doing, your relationship to pleasure, your relationship to pain, your relationship to self-centeredness. Your happiness is going to come from your wisdom, not my wishes from you, for you. So doing that also with your kids, seeing your kids as having their own karma rather than like, I created you, I'm responsible for you. You're supposed to do uh, what I say. You also have your own karma. Last thing that I'll say that I was talking about, I was dissing the Burmese. And I'm a fan of the Burmese, even if they're rigid and speak from behind fans. <laughs> I had a friend who was a serious Burmese practitioner, did lots of retreats with some Sayadaw tradition people. I had done three month retreats, had been studying with this one teacher who was like, this is my teacher. Um, and then she uh, got married and she got pregnant and she went to her Buddhist teacher and said, I'm having a baby. And true story, her teacher said, there's no hope for you for liberation now. True story was just like, oh, you're going to be so attached to that kid. How are you ever going to get free now? I think Nirvana is harder when you're a parent than when you're not. Nirvana is fucking hard anyways. <laughs> Being non-attached is, you know, what a task. But once you have that biological attachment to a child, it makes it harder to free ourselves from all of those different levels of clinging. And, and it's one of the reasons why the monks take those vows of celibacy and the nuns take those vows of celibacy. I hope some of, somewhere in there, there was some helpful reflections. Thank you very much. Yeah, welcome. Let me see, take one online. Kristen. Thank you. Um, my question is more like recovery based. Um, I'm back in the struggles of very early sobriety again, and I've been having a lot of craving and obsessing and I'm trying to find this balance of like either riding the wave and acknowledging and, um, trying not to, you know, have aversion towards it but I feel like if I have awareness around it it gets stronger and if I have aversion towards it and kind of put it where it's supposed to be it gets stronger and I'm I just don't know like I guess at what point is it healthy to like dig in and dive in or to like keep you know having that natural aversion towards it knowing that it's not a healthy thought to kind of follow if that makes sense yeah could you mostly hear it in the room yeah it is a tricky, um, experience in, in early recovery. And there is some, and I like the way that you put it, like either kind of turn towards it and it gets stronger or uh, have a version towards it and then it gets stronger too. And there is something to that, like 12 step encouragement to not really turn towards it, or meet it with aversion, but just uh, replace it with thinking about others. Be of service. That kind of get out of our own self-centered obsession by being of service. Super useful at times in early recovery to just be like, I'm too in my own shit and I, I need to just um, see what I can do to help others and show up to the meetings and go to the meetings and get out of my stuff. like. 
that having been said, that avoidance technique, so there's a place for avoidance techniques. Sometimes. Eventually, you have to come to the place to be willing to turn towards it, even though it gets stronger. And to sit with, this is craving, this is obsessive thought, this is all of that stuff, and I'm not going to obey my mind. I'm not going to do it, my, but I'm going to turn towards it. I'm going to try to send some forgiveness, some loving kindness, some mm -hmm. compassion to that craving mind, but I'm not going to obey it. So that first piece of like, yeah, it gets bigger. The more aversion we meet it with, the bigger it gets. And ignoring it at times is good. Replacing it is good, but eventually we have to just learn to sit with it. There's a Buddhist story, Kristen, you might have heard this. I might have even told it on that last retreat you were on, but um, there's this Buddhist story about this. Um, it's called the anger eating demon, where there's this little tiny demon and what we'll call it like the addiction demon the craving demon you know whatever and it goes into the heaven realms and it's sitting in brahma brahma is like the creator in the buddhist uh, you know hindu buddhist world and and he goes in and he's sitting in the creator's throne and the throne's huge but it's this little fucking addiction demon and then all of the and, and brahma's you know out surfing something, I don't know, smoking weed with Shiva, I don't know where he is, but he's not there. And, and, and people and the attendants start getting really mad and, and aversive towards the demon, start yelling at him, get the fuck out of, of Brahma's chair. You know, and he starts in every insult and in every aversion, he gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And every like, you, I shouldn't think that I shouldn't feel this, I shouldn't bigger and bigger and bigger. And finally, like he gets massive and craving just gets massive and anger just gets massive. And so finally, you know, this mystical story, they go get the Buddha. They're like, we don't know what the fuck to do. <laughs> get the Buddha. We need an intervention. Best interventionist we know, Buddha. So they go get the Buddha. And the Buddha comes up to the heaven realms and goes into the throne room and sees the anger slash addiction demon. And he starts complimenting him. He's like, you look good in that throne, way better than Brahma does. You're totally welcome here. And with every compliment and kindness, it shrinks. And every part of like, it's okay for you to exist. It's okay for you to be here. Shrinks and shrinks and shrinks right back down to its own size. And it was the aversion that grows it. And it's the acceptance and the love and the compassion that shrinks it down to like, just craving. I can sit with this craving. And that difference between craving and obsession, I can just sit with it. When I meet it with aversion, it's overwhelming. And sometimes even just turning towards it, it's like, oh, I don't want to see that, which is still aversion. Turning towards it with as much kindness, acceptance. It's okay for you to be here shrinks it to its right size. I don't know if that's helpful or not, Kristen, but it's the thought that came, the story that came to mind. What was another hand in the room? John? Uh, 
I think you know the, one of the first real gifts of mindfulness for me was was just the recognition that like ninety five percent of my brain cycles were constantly engaged in chasing after something or being running away from something. But just like how much of my time was was really caught up in that. Um, and I think you know once you're aware of that, it, it starts to keep things a little bit. And I, I noticed that um, you know I really started to start questioning a lot of the things that I was supposed to be chasing, you know, like, you got a lot of societally indicated, you know, things that we chase, whether it's relationships or family or job or whatever. And just kind of getting to a place where, you know, I, I kind of was experiencing like a, a new kind of suffering that was really just about a lack of meaning, you know, in what I do. What, what do I do? Like, the, what's the highest and best use of my time at any given moment, you know? So I just was wondering if there's anywhere in Buddhism that there is discussion of like what is the meaning of this experience of life? Because it seems to me that it's not it's really present. Uh, for those of you at home that might not have been able to hear John's question, who's reflecting on his own kind of search for meaning and in the material world or conditions around relationships or careers or and then the the core question is um what if is there was the buddhist path say about the meaning of life is there a meaning yes it's a very buddhist centric meaning um which is uh we are in samsara life existence which consists of uh, six realms of existence. The human and the animal are the only ones that we see, the heavens and hells and hungry ghosts and jealous gods. And um, I think that's it. Is that six? I don't know, I think. <laughs> um, and the meaning, the purpose, I don't know if purpose and meaning are the same thing, but is to free ourselves from suffering. It's the same thing as the goal, the goal of the path the why we're here, the meaning, the opportunity that we have is to, and the, and the, and the, you know, the, that we'll actually keep coming back until we free ourselves from greed and hatred and delusion. We've existed so many times before, and we will continue in this sort of, that one of the um, definitions of samsara, of the Buddhist concept of reality is perpetual wandering. And I would add sort of almost feels like perpetual meaninglessness. Like when you're wandering sort of aimlessly through existence after existence. My experience of coming to the Dharma is that it's given my life meaning. I've, I've got a goal, I've got a meaning, it's something that I'm doing, trying to free myself from suffering. And in part of that is also, I'm trying to be of service to others as I free myself trying to have some level of altruism and generosity and compassion for all living beings, which makes life really fucking meaningful. The meaning of life from the Buddhist perspective, wake up and help as many others as you can. Makes for a really meaningful life, not career, not relationship, not any of that stuff as the meaning of life. Yes, have a career, <laughs> figure out what you wanna do and do it, yes have a relationship. It'll be healing. It'll be challenging. It'll be your fucking spiritual practice right there at work in your relationship. 
but the meaning isn't the relationship. The meaning isn't, the meaning is freedom. How do I use this relationship to heal, to get free? How do I show up to work in a way that is of benefit to the people that I work with, hopefully doing something decent for the world, not just raping the planet, but actually doing something a little bit decent for the world, hopefully. So awakening is the point, the meaning. We're here because of our karma and we're here with the opportunity to purify our karma. The blind sea turtle. Inside joke, just for the people that were on retreat, the rest of you don't get it. <laughs> so most of you know it anyways. Um, hope that's helpful. Nikita, go ahead. Unmute yourself. Here I come. Hey, Noah. Thank you so much, man. I, I'm curious now about the, uh, the turtle. But <clears throat> so in recovery, there's the notion of uh, creative intelligence, higher power, right? It seems being a gentle, loving, and humorous um, or cultivating that is, is what we do while simultaneously um, dissolving a self. I've been, I've been living or trying to live your teaching and my practice is really born fruit and it's amazing. I really want to say thank you. Um, I've been listening to one of your teachers, um, Ajahn Amar, right? And he was talking about self and something about every time one reaches for something, it slips away, right? And until we're really selfless and just it comes to us and it's never really ours, something to that effect. But the dissolving self is what's up. And so I, I was just curious how you reconcile this thing of a, uh, uh, an external higher power. And I know that in Buddhism, we don't have that. Yeah. But in, in recovery, this, this, the grace of, you know, whatever, whereas we're more of like cultivating do the footwork. What do you have to say about that, please? So I know it's a complicated, complicated. Well, it's not that complicated. I just want to, I'm trying to decide how critical to be or how kind. Um, uh, not towards you, not, not towards you, but, um, you know, the, the 12 steps that Nikita is referring to, um, are based on a theistic Judeo-Christian view of the world, of humans being um, powerless, and that there's an uh, all-powerful creator deity that, uh, you know, is kind of pulling the strings on our meaningless lives. And uh, uh, the only hope is petitioning that, you know, all-powerful creator deity, um, because you're powerless and only, uh, you know, could restore you to sanity, only this higher power. It's just such a drastically different worldview, philosophy, than the Buddhist philosophy that says people are totally responsible for their own happiness. And, um, you know, the, the truth is in Buddhism, there are, like that story I just talked about, Brahma, 
Brahma's God. But the Buddhist attitude towards God is a couple things. One, first of all, the gods, there's a bunch of them because it's that sort of Hindu polytheism, not monotheism. But the gods have their own problems and they're like not that worried about your sobriety. <laughs> right? In, the, in that kind of context. Um, and, you know, and, and even that sort of like the Buddha is often referred to as the teacher of gods and men or men and gods. Because there's all of these stories where the gods are asking the Buddha for advice because the gods are wrathful. They're jealous, right? You know, you know that God you grew up with? Wrathful God, jealous God, spiteful God. And then, you know, oh, no, actually, he's a God of love. You know, when he's not spiting you, loves the shit out of you. You know, and um, that's Old Testament. Now he's, you know, he went to rehab. God's like, <laughs> God's super nice now. He's evolved. God evolved. Yeah, he's not like, <laughs> smiting people and putting fucking you know floods and killing humanity and telling his you know son to cut half his penis off and... <laughs> anyways buddhism is non-theistic there like there is some mystical theism in it but the the bottom line the way that i interpret it anyways is that buddhism says yeah like maybe there are some deities or, or whatever but they're not going to do your work for you they're not going to intervene that human beings have their own karma and are responsible for their own happiness and so it's just uh, you know, very different. I think it's for me you know kind of having gone to 12 step and i as you know i continue to go um, and, uh, but it's Buddhism just makes more sense to me. Just make, you know, non-theistic humanist psychology of Buddhism just makes way more sense than the magical thinking of an external deity doing something for me, me taking full responsibility for my happiness, for my recovery, for my, is what's made sense to me for the last 34 years. <coughs> Right. Agency. Oh, thank you. Agency. Um, but that having been said, 12 steps are, you know, what a great program and what a fucking brilliant uh, thing that those guys created 90 something years ago of peer, peer support. You know, the brilliant thing about recovery is the fellowship is us helping each other. Even if the philosophy doesn't you know, resonate for a lot of people. And it's one of the reasons why refuge has gained so much popularity and why Buddhism of having a non-theistic approach rather than God's going to do it for you. Um, but the, what a brilliant, you know, I even think that you know, is if there's any sort of recovery lineage, you know, like we have Buddhist lineages, um, uh, you know, kind of Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Sumedho and Ajahn Amaro and, you know, all of the teachers that have kind of given it to me and then me giving it to you and the other teachers that have given it to you. And, uh, you know, refuge recovery is a 12-step lineage, even though we're a complete, you know, bastard atheist child of recovery. <laughs> It's still in that lineage of peer recovery that came from, you know, created by Bill and Bob in the 30s or whenever it was. So it's all connected in that way.
I feel about done. We got 10 more minutes. I've got three hands online or two more. I'm just going to take these last two online. Mark, go ahead. Thanks, Noah. Um, first off, I did just want to on what James talked about. The thing I like the most about this is you and I listen to Semedo quite a bit because of the humor. You know, there's humor around really serious life changing things. And I like that. Um, that approach to it. It keeps me coming back, you know. Um, the one thing I was thinking a lot about is um, I kind of, I think I get the basics of, you know, you guys just came from a seven day silent retreat. I get, you know, leaving the cell phone alone, not checking emails, you know, taking phone calls, that kind of stuff. But can you kind of maybe explain a little bit what the main benefits that you gain from being in a community of a bunch of people, but to each other i mean i know there's the teachings and all that but what do you think it's the silence are because i really in our western conference when we're all together and sharing and activities but what's the benefits of the silent retreat um wisdom is developed with a combination of uh concentration and mindfulness which leads to the, the, the wisdom of compassion, the wisdom of non-attachment and non-identification with your mind. And when you're in silence for days, you and meditating, sitting meditation and walking meditation and really being intentional about being mindful of your food and your eating and your sleeping. And when you have days and days and days of that silent introspective mind training, you get so much more concentrated, you start seeing things so much more clearly. When you're um, with your mind, and you just get to watch without the, the mind unadulterated from external attention, the mind unadulterated from uh, putting on that self to be uh, funny, right, even or, or sexy, or, you know, smart, or, you know, whatever personality, you know, you want to put on when you're in uh, community in, in communication, when you can take all of that off and just watch your mind and, and watch your personality arise and pass and watch your plans and memories. And there's something on retreat that just allows you to see more and more clearly the impermanent nature of all things the impersonal nature of the moods and attitudes and views and opinions and get a little bit more space around it. Hopefully to have a little bit more sense of humor about how ridiculous our minds are so often that when we are in community, which is also important when we, you know, when we're having the sanghas or he was referring to the like when we have the conferences and you're not in silence and you're connecting and you're playing and you're laughing and you're flirting and you're farting and you're doing whatever, something so important about that too, about that connection, that community building that we do, but it's not gonna lead to the kind of wisdom that silent intensive retreat's gonna lead to. It's gonna lead to more connections and support and encouragement and, you know, I always like to say, you know, one of the other things we need to learn as Buddhists is we need to learn how to fight. We need to learn how to face, to have conflict with each other and stay in some level of love and some level of honesty and, and uh, connection, even when we have conflict. Not that I'm good at it, but I want to learn it. I want, you know, that's something that I, I, I'm committed to. Um, 
So I hope that that's an, enough of, uh, did it make sense what I was saying about retreat? Yeah, totally. Thank you so much. I just, yeah, thank you. Welcome. Casey, last one, we'll end with this. Cool, thank you. Uh, it's a little bit of a left turn and I don't wanna keep everyone uh, with this question, but I just wanna get your take on kind of the, uh, the commodification of mindfulness um, as kind of like a wellness fad or even a corporate productivity tool. Um, like, what do you think about all that stuff? Does it have anything to do with what we do here? Does it have any utility or do you see it as kind of like a, a bastardization? Everybody hear it? Um, depends on my mood. <laughs> what kind of attitude I have. Or maybe that's true for everything, but, um, but for the most part, I feel like it's pretty awesome that John Kabat-Zinn tricked America into meditating <laughs> and pretended like it wasn't Buddhism and that it got brought into psychology and that it got brought into medicine and that like, you know, there's millions of people meditating in America that don't know they're practicing Buddhism. <laughs> because they've been so successful at secularizing it, secularizing it. Um, and it is totally a bastardization and a watered down, taking one part of the Buddha's teachings and removing it from the context of love and compassion and renunciation precepts. That having been said, and the apps, right? All of those, you know, commodification apps and these meditators making millions of dollars because they're good at tech and they, great, you know, like on whatever level. I don't know how many people here, but I meet people all the time that started meditating on some sort of secular mindfulness app or, you know, class or, and that, many people or some people anyways, it draws them into interest of like, I want to know more about this. Mindfulness is pretty good. And it doesn't take much of a investigation to be like, oh, this is Buddhism. This comes from Buddhism. What else did the Buddha say? Oh, let me start to look at these four truths, this eightfold path, this. So I'm, for the most part, I don't have a ton of judgment of it. Some of the commodification of it and the, um, you know, there, there's things where like, they were teaching mindfulness in the army to make better killing machines. Mm -hmm. So it's like, ooh, that's like the Buddha was like, this is the opposite of what the Buddha's teachings are around non-killing. Um, you know, there, uh, you know, a lot of the big tech corporations are bringing mindfulness in to, you know, and maybe in the name of like health and wellness, and uh, we want to provide our employees with a sort of balanced lifestyle and a stress reduction tool. And that all sounds good to me. But then, you know, you also hear this, like, so that they can produce more for our corporation. You know, the studies show that a relaxed worker will make you more money. Teach them meditation. Whatever the motivation is, I don't, I don't know so much. Uh, getting people to meditate, it's good. And sometimes people will 
carry on with that and get serious about it. And it will lead to some major transformations in their life. Um, so anyways, mixed feelings, but I tend to land in the like, it's pretty cool. It's not going to lead to liberation, listening to these guided meditations on these apps, but it's going to give you some tools. Pretty cool. It's helping people suffer a little bit less. You know, and the other side of that, and this is, I, I believe this is true. I don't know statistically, but it seems like there's probably, I don't know, I don't know about the numbers, but there's, there's this true fact that very few Buddhists meditate, including monks and nuns. I don't know if you know that. There's billions of Buddhists <laughs> in Asia and other, you know, around the world, billions. Maybe 10% of them have a meditation practice as part of their Buddhism. Now, we have this thing going on the opposite over here where we've got millions of people meditating. We're like, I'm not a fucking Buddhist. I just meditate. Right? So there's all these people who are like, I'm a Buddhist. That's my religion. That's my belief. But I don't actually meditate. And then we're all of us, like probably most of you are like, well, I'm not really a Buddhist. I'm just meditating. I'm interested in Buddhism, studying it, but that's not, I'm not taking it on as a religion. I'm just, I'm, you know, learning meditation, learning the path. Anyways, we'll, we'll end with that tonight. Um, thanks. I hope this was useful in some of these reflections. And I mean, I always have plenty to say. I just, sometimes I just don't know what I want to say and I didn't have a topic tonight. So this was fun to uh, do a Q&A with you. And um, that retreat we just finished was awesome. There's a whole bunch of people that were here. You know, the system of, of retreat is uh, tried and true and uh, leads to transformation. And I encourage everyone to come on retreat when you can. Uh, the next Against the Stream retreat advertisement, right, uh, is March 17th through 26th. It's a 10 night meditation retreat in Portugal. So you're all invited to Portugal in March. Um, registration is available now. It's up on the website. I think we can only take 35 people to the retreat. Uh, I'm co-teaching this retreat with Jason Sif, who's a colleague of mine, used to be a Buddhist monk, Theravadan, Sri Lankan tradition. Jason has taught at Against the Stream a few times. We taught a week-long retreat together a few years ago, and we're very different. And our views and opinions on Buddhism are different in a lot of ways, which makes it interesting, actually, to bring two different, rather than the echo chamber of, like, we all agree, of, like, oh, he brings this perspective, and I bring maybe a counter perspective, or I bring this perspective, and then he'll, he'll say, well, we could also look at it this way. Um, I think it's really good for the students to hear diverse perspectives. Um, anyways, if you uh, are interested and have the ability, it's only $600 for a 10-day retreat in Portugal. $300 to, against the stream to register and then about $300 to the um, room and board for the, at the retreat center. In, you have to bring them cash. You have to bring them euros. They don't take your fucking Venmos. <laughs> no credit cards we want euros um it's gonna be awesome i've never been to portugal before 
I know um, some people have told me about, you know, it's up in the hills, half hour above the coast, you, up in the mountains, you see the ocean in the distance. And um, so I hope some of you join us for that. I'll be here next week. I think I'm here for the next couple of weeks. I will have class on Halloween, which is Monday. Uh, don't come in costume. It's okay to come in costume, but it's not a party. We're fucking serious about this meditation stuff. I don't want you to sitting here having fun. And then I'm gone. I have a retreat in um, New Mexico in November. But anyways, maybe Jason will sub for me. We'll see. Class is done by donation. Against the Stream needs your help, needs your gener generosity. The way this thing is done is that obviously we don't charge people to come to the Zoom group. We don't charge people to come into the room. You support the center. You help pay the rent on the center. On a Monday night, if you can give $20 or $25 or $30, whatever you can give to help. And if you have less and you can only afford five bucks, 10 bucks, two bucks, whatever it is, give what feels appropriate to you. But please consider um, you know, that you would pay $25 uh, for a yoga class or that you would pay you know, $15 to go to a movie or that you would you know, say, well, I can only afford two bucks, but I did just drink an $8 coffee. <laughs> um, you know, so consider this as a worthy thing to, to freely give some money to uh, to support us paying the rent and um, all the expenses of running this this nonprofit organization that is against the stream be as generous as you can please consider becoming a monthly supporter um, where you uh, on the website you just say i want to give 50 dollars a month to support the organization and that's that's you know i've been hoping that we could get enough monthly supporters to actually pay the rent and our rent on this po portion is only 3500 a month not bad for Venice. Not bad, but um, the donations don't quite cover it. So, you know, if you can help cover the rent, cover the expenses of the, of the organization, deeply appreciative for whatever you can do. I think that's it. What else? Oh, there's a day long in November. I think it's November. 12th or 13th that's the last day long of the year i'll announce that again later it's on the website maybe we'll get a flyer up um, day long november 12th or 13th whatever that sunday is or saturday is in, in november tara's at the desk there if you want to buy it oh there's these new t-shirts you guys can see it at home i think i showed them last week new against the stream t-shirts there's a, also a sweatshirt another meditate and destroy um there i think they're available or they will be available this week to order online if you if you want to get one at home and we have them here if anybody wants one tar will be at the desk many goodness that comes from our practice this discussion of the buddha's dharma be gathered and shared outward in all directions may each one of us get as free as possible in this lifetime and together may we create a positive change on this planet Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. 
If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.